When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The View From Somewhere. I'm Ramona Martinez, the producer. For folks just joining us, we know there are a lot of conversations going on right now about Black Lives Matter and the current uprisings in response to police violence. We have a few resources on our website, including a list of tips for ethical coverage of Black-led resistance. And episode two of The View From Somewhere, How Black Lives Matter Changed the News, really digs into a lot of this stuff. All that is on viewfromsomewhere.com. Thanks, and enjoy the show. Speaking truth to power, challenging the status quo. That's what I started into journalism for, but almost five years into it, I found myself doing some of the very things I had been skeptical of. For example, I was working at Marketplace in 2016, and I went to Detroit to do a story about predatory home sales and how impossible it was for low-income people to actually buy the inexpensive homes in that city. I was looking for someone who'd been a victim of one of these unregulated predatory loans, land contracts, and found this guy, Eddie Cave. He lived in a beautiful blue-gray house on a sunny Detroit street. All the houses are big, wide two-stories with lush front lawns. But half of them on his block are lying empty, the lawns overgrown. And Eddie's Victorian-style home, with dark oak trim and blue-painted walls, has no electricity, no running water, no heat in the winter. He uses an electric wheelchair that he charges from a generator out back, cooks on a propane stove in his dark kitchen. He almost lost this home to a predatory seller who had tacked on all these secret fees and back taxes to his contract. I sit out on his cement front steps, holding my mic up to Eddie in his chair, look into his eyes for hours, and record this super moving story. I learn other stuff about Eddie, too. How he'd lost most of his friends to AIDS or crack. How he used to be a DJ. How he wishes he could get through this financial trouble so he could give back more to his community. How he wants to be a journalist. He wants to be the one telling stories about Detroit. At one point, Eddie cries and hugs me, saying, you're a beautiful person. I go straight from his front steps to the airport in a rental car, depressed beyond words about this feeling of powerlessness and this feeling that I'm doing a thing I kind of hate, parachuting into someone else's life, someone else's crisis, leaving to produce a four-minute story that won't actually change anything for him. He had cried, so I had what radio people call good tape. But there I was, a white person extracting a black person's painful story. Again. And for what? For the benefit of an audience that was mostly elsewhere, who might feel bad for Eddie, but wouldn't actually change things for him. I knew there had to be another way.
couple years later, a Detroit-based journalist named Sarah Alvarez changed my whole perspective on this interaction. It's not about what can what can we do? Like as reporters, you can only do so much. It's like, what are the skills and the tools that you have that you could give to other people, right? It's not, why wouldn't you do that? This is The View From Somewhere, a podcast about journalism with a purpose. I'm your host, Lewis Raven Wallace. If it's your first time and you like what you hear, we recommend listening back from the start. The podcast is serialized. For repeat listeners, welcome back. We've missed you so much. Today, we're going to share a few examples of how journalism can be less about extraction and more about power sharing. And we'll talk about just how important community-driven journalism is in times of crisis like this pandemic we're in. We'll hear from Sarah Alvarez of Outlier Media about text message-based reporting in Detroit, and also Bettina Chang of City Bureau about filling information gaps on Chicago's South Side. It is not all hopeless, I promise. Stick around. all these questions about what the F I was doing, reporting on low-income people and housing inequality for marketplace, from my perspective as an upper-income person, it felt a bit like poverty porn. I remember after my story came out, a listener sent Eddie Cave $200. But I knew that those individual acts aren't going to change the structures harming people like Eddie all over the country, all the time. And it's an issue with journalism more broadly. So often, marginalized people are reported about, but they're not assumed to be the audience or the creators of those stories. And the theory of change, meaning the model for how journalism affects social change, is that powerful people elsewhere will hear a story about oppressed people and care, and then the change will kind of trickle down in the form of policy or legislation or electoral choices. It's the objectivity theory of change but often it doesn't actually work that way. In 2018, I was on a panel with Sarah Alvarez, who founded Outlier Media. That's a media outlet in Detroit that is all about power sharing. And she had some solutions to this. I interviewed her afterwards. What's the story of starting Outlier Media? How did that start? It took a long time. So I first, I started it in, at Michigan Radio, when I worked there as a reporter and a producer, and I was covering low-income families, um, but the audience of Michigan Radio is primarily high-income individuals. And I was dissatisfied with that dynamic. I didn't feel like that was the way that I could be most useful, and I really wanted to figure out how to deliver content to the group that was being reported on. So it would be more of reporting with and more reporting for. She spent a year researching approaches to reporting for and with low-income people and concluded that the best way to make the information really accessible would be to use SMS, text messaging, to get it out. And she was very focused on valuable information. And valuable doesn't mean I like it. Valuable doesn't mean, like, I feel close to it. You know, valuable is like, I could use it, and it helped me with a problem that I had. 
seems pretty basic, but it's actually a really different priority than most news organizations. They might say they're focused on valuable information, but the assumption is that the reporters and editors somehow know which information that is, based on instinct or something. But reporters and editors are often also from middle and upper income backgrounds. So she was super deliberate about finding out before she started Outlier. What did low-income Detroiters actually want and need to know about? She used data, not just instinct. The way that I um, figure out what to cover is uh, by using different data sources that show me what people are complaining about most and asking questions about most. And I rely very heavily on United Way's 211 data. Um, And so I cover housing and utilities, which are Detroiters number one and number two information needs. And what's an example within housing and utilities in Detroit of actionable information? So utilities is really hard to figure out, and I'm trying to figure it out right now. Um, Housing was very easy. Housing renters have... um, very little information. And even buyers in Detroit have very little information because it's almost an exclusively cash sales market. I think I said this before, but like there were fewer than a thousand mortgages in the whole city of Detroit last year. It means everybody's buying with cash. And when you buy with cash and you don't have a contract, that's like buyer beware, right? So you need good information to be able to make a good decision. So information that is actionable here is who really owns this place? Because unless you're going to the register of deeds, you may not be able to figure that out. Um, So who really owns this place? What's the tax debt associated with this place? Because that is a tremendous problem here. Is it on the tax auction list already or is it at risk of tax auction? So it was literally people like Eddie Cave who needed info on the homes they were buying or renting, who owned them, the back taxes and so on. But Sarah would be getting to these folks before they got into those transactions and became fodder for a story like the one I told. The theory of change was totally different. And it mattered a lot to Sarah that people like Eddie who don't have computers or fancy phones actually get this information. You couldn't just put a story up on a website somewhere and expect them to find it. I buy lists of phone numbers. I um, use a platform called GroundSource that allows me to send um, like, you know, 5,000 people at a time a text message. And I commissioned from GroundSource the ability to put a database basically on the back end so that when someone enters an address says like, oh, okay, I'll try this. There's a little intro text that says, this is Outlier Media. We are a free community journalism service for Detroiters. If you would like information on your property to check to make sure it's not on the tax auction list or that it has blight tickets, you can get started by entering your address. And so if someone enters their address, then um, the database gets pulled from and you get property-specific information. And then everybody is given the opportunity to say they want a journalist to follow up with them. And a lot of people, hundreds per month, were doing this. So, yeah, about 40% of my users do ask for follow-up. And then I follow up with them, again, over text message, but that is not bot-driven. That is like person-to-person, hey, this is Sarah Alvarez, I'm from Outlier, what question did you have? All of this has a big picture goal. Uh, My news consumers are very focused on accountability, as am I, and that's why they want the information. 
Sarah says lots of people have saved their homes or avoided eviction by using Outlier's text service, basically gotten out of the situation Eddie Cave was in, rather than becoming a statistic afterwards. It's direct financial journalism, answering urgent questions for low-income people, kind of the opposite of what we did at Marketplace, where we did stock market numbers, financial information for high-income people, and then talked about poor people at arm's length. For Sarah, flipping this model on its head is about power sharing and about rebuilding trust with the people whose information needs are really urgent. But I think it's a really good way also, this method of instilling trust in journalism. You know, because I am always making promises that I can keep and um, giving people an inside look at how journalism works and what it can do um, and how you can have a good experience with it, you know, because it is not extractive. It's really about being useful. So the theory of change is about putting information in the hands of the people for whom it's most useful to stem problems with housing and utilities before they even start and making promises you can keep to increase trust in journalism overall. Sometimes Outlier will also do a big feature story based on things they're hearing. You can see their work at outliermedia.org. But mostly, they're revolutionizing the news industry by texting people. Coming up. We built this infrastructure for an urgent need. It was housing. And it's... It just wasn't recognized as an urgent need by people who weren't experiencing it. How Outlier is responding to the desperate need for information in pandemic times. Hey everyone, it's Ramona, the producer of The View From Somewhere, coming to you from my kitchen, where the kofifi is hot and the quarantine is ongoing, but... I'm excited because now that we're done fundraising for the show, thanks to our Kickstarter supporters and online donors, we're going to spend these breaks promoting other shows that we like. Today, we're talking about our friend Tuck Woodstock, the host of Gender Reveal. Gender Reveal is an award-winning podcast that's just trying to figure out what the heck gender is. Each week, Tuck speaks with trans authors, artists, and activists about the hidden ways that gender permeates our lives and intersects with race, class, ability, age, and sexuality. As one reviewer wrote, if a podcast does change your life, it will probably be this one. Listen and subscribe at genderpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. For our show notes, transcripts, and other recommendations, check out viewfromsomewhere.com. Okay, back to the show. Detroit, which is in Wayne County, has been a coronavirus hotspot. From March 10th through May 23rd, 2020, there were nearly 20,000 cases in the county alone and 2,361 deaths. 
And at the same time, there's been all this disinvestment in news and information and really in everything in Detroit. Part of the story of the city is its abandonment over half a century by people and companies with resources. But Detroit's is also always a story of resistance. The city has an incredible community of activists and media projects doing things for themselves, which Outlier's a part of. Of course, when the pandemic was beginning to unfold, we thought of Sarah Alvarez, and we reached back out to find out what's happening now. Detroit's been incredibly hard hit, and so it's been very, um, it's been very hard to to really ha- watch this play out. Like it's really, I mean, the people who are sick, every life matters equally. Um, but the people who are sick and passing away here, not only do they have like value because they have value, but there's there, it's also been a lot of people who are community leaders. And I think that that's really very difficult for, for everyone. Oh my God. That's awful. Yeah. Um, are you rolling by the way? On yourself? Me, yeah. I've been okay, sick. Cool. Old habits die hard, man. As soon as I picked up the phone. <laughs> Great. Love it. Um, <laughs> right now with COVID, everything and nothing is different. We've merged with another organization called Muckrock. We merged with them um, fairly recently. And so we're transitioning some of that SMS-based work over to a collaborative in Detroit. And now what we're working on is kind of how to integrate more tools into what we do. So like we wanted to redistribute the watchdog function of journalism. That's what we were doing with Outlier. Muckrock is a transparency organization and they have really good tools for filing Freedom of Information Act requests and and also like keeping up with those requests and the systems would file um, like when a, when a agency doesn't get back to you, right. So they have like five days or 10 days to get back to you. If they don't get back to you, the muckrock system follows up with that agency automatically. So it lets them know, like, we weren't kidding about this request. Mm. We really do want this information and we're going to continue to bother you until you give it to us. So those are, so that is also a tool that is this like redistributive tool, right? It lets everybody do what journalists do, which is try to get public information into the hands of more people. Mm-hmm. And that's what we were trying to do. So like now we're kind of working with this idea of given that there are fewer newsrooms and especially fewer newsrooms focused on small communities or low income communities or communities of color, how do those communities arm themselves with the same tools that journalists have used to create accountability and open government, how do we arm them with those tools so that they can do this for themselves, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That's what we really want to do. And that's what our text message system can do. And that's what these other tools can do. Because we have to be ready for that. This is, it's not about what can what can we do? Like as reporters, you can only do so much. It's like, what are the skills and the tools that you have that you could give to other people? Right. It's not, why wouldn't you do that? Yeah. Why wouldn't, if we, if we care, if we really think that our jobs matter, if we think that they're so important, then why would we hoard these skills and these tools? 
right? And these practices. I saw that you all put out a message that that asks people to text the word corona to a number to tell us what you need right now. So uh, how does that work? What's that involve? So that's the that's kind of the coronavirus specific information needs survey. And that helps us change our housing product, right? Our SMS reporting around housing to be more inclusive of people's immediate needs. So we already know that people's needs are clustered around shelter, food, health and safety, employment, and kids and school. So we're working with um, reporters around the city to do reporting. So Chalkbeat is an education um, journalism organization, and they're reporting out the kids and child care piece so that then we can take whatever reporting they have when they go and they say, like, these are people's most frequent questions. This is the reporting that we have. And we can, like, tr- basically put that in a format that can be distributed over SMS. Same with food, right? We know that that's really going to be about food distribution sites. Hunger is a real problem in this city. And what people need to know is what are the, oper- what are what places are giving food, what times, um, and all of those different sites. And we can put that into a, an Excel spreadsheet basically and link it to our SMS system so that when someone puts in their zip code, we can give them the food distribution sites for their neighborhood and and we can keep that updated. So that's what we're using that survey to help us figure out what people's most common questions are and what kind of information we need to be able to give them and also like what we need to follow up on. But we've also heard from people who are like, I don't have a roof on my house. I need to get my roof repaired ASAP. That's not about coronavirus. That was a need before coronavirus. It's a need now, and it's going to be harder to get that need met now. So even though everybody's focusing on this current crisis in a place like Detroit, we have these underlying challenges that still need to be met and as reporters, I think we still need to keep our eye on those things because it's what matters most to people. So you've been working for years now on answering questions and helping people answer questions about utilities and housing, tax foreclosures, evictions, and so on. And and now all of a sudden the city of Detroit has a moratorium, right, on water shutoffs and on tax foreclosures and on evictions. How does it feel to see that kind of response and just that kind of rapid change in the environment that you're covering? It's so interesting, and I think it's so appropriate. Um, Our job now is to follow up and make sure that those things are actually happening, right? As soon as the moratorium on utility shutoffs was announced, um, I would you know, got a call from a young woman who had just had her electricity shut off and had lost her job because of of coronavirus. And so those things can still happen, right? Mm-hmm. And we need to follow up and make sure that that 
um, these promises are being fulfilled. So, you know, we did. Um, and her electricity, you know, it has been restored. It feels though like that was a really appropriate government response. And I think it will be interesting to see, you know, after this immediate crisis is over, what is business as usual after that? How are, how are water shutoffs going to resume? How are utility shutoffs going to resume? How are tax foreclosures going to resume? These things, I feel like part of the reason why these things got to be so bad is because there wasn't a lot of focus on them during that time when it, when it was happening. It was this kind of like slow moving crisis that folks did not really want to pay attention to and that was not in the media. When these things resume, I wonder if... Um, if people are going to pay attention, you know? Yeah. I mean, it strikes me just how amazing it is that outlier media right now has this infrastructure for answering people's urgent questions so directly and just like how useful it would be. I wish we had that everywhere. (laughs) Me too. And you know, it's interesting because like we built this infrastructure for an urgent need. It was housing and it's it just wasn't recognized as an urgent need by people who weren't experiencing it. But we knew that it was an urgent need. Now everybody understands that there's a different urgent need. But after this virus goes away, there will be new urgent needs in communities. And that's one thing that like I think why it's important to redistribute these news resources, these news and information resources is because like, if we as reporters are just trying to assess what we feel is urgent, that is a huge disservice to communities. We need to be able to respond to what communities say is urgent. We can believe them. Like, why wouldn't we trust them, right? Why don't we want to just respond? Why do we have to be in charge and say, no, I believe that this is urgent. This is what I would like to work on, right? That's so selfish. And it is urgent. Outlier now responds to about 200 messages per day about a whole range of information needs for Detroiters. Food and jobs are the biggest. But the most surprising thing Sarah said to me in this follow-up conversation was actually something personal. When we met a few years ago, she was really only interested in reporting on actionable, practical information. She was really over the focus on empathy and personal storytelling And even the romanticized idea that journalism is about writing the historical record, which was kind of amazing to me as someone who's so focused on story and history. But in this crisis, surrounded by all this death, the loss of key elders and community leaders in the city, things have changed for her. I've not ever felt like I had anything to contribute in terms of creating a record. I felt like my job, I could be most useful by helping people get accountability when they needed it. And now, as we see these stories about Detroit and about how hard hit we are, you know, those stories, that is 
it's important to do the documentation and it's going to be important to document how residents are experiencing this and to create a record for the future of what it was like to be in the middle of this um of this crisis and i've just never have i've never been a reporter during a crisis and so i'm it's interesting that i'm i'm understanding that that's a i've always known that that's a valuable role and that that's a valuable service but i've never felt the need to to do it until now This pandemic is changing all of us, probably forever. While Sarah is fired up about writing the historical record, now I'm fired up about SMS text messaging and how to build information infrastructure that we need right now. Information saves lives, y'all. Next up, Bettina Chang of City Bureau in Chicago on how they're doing it. I got into mainstream journalism in a sort of roundabout way through community organizing and then kind of worked my way back to where I started. Bettina Chang, on the other hand, went into journalism through the front door. She went to journalism school, did well, got internships, and not long after she graduated, got a job at Pacific Standard, a national print magazine at the time. And that wasn't what she'd hoped. My whole life and my, my career, I had heard that, like, the be- you know, really, really great journalists end up working for national magazines. And they do, you know, this important work, you know, they write, like, cover stories for The Atlantic and they do all this important work. And then, like, actually getting in there and seeing how insular it was and seeing how, like, the incentive structure was, like, around, like, saying the smart thing quickly rather than, like, doing the work and, like, getting your hands dirty. Like, that started to um, really... Um, great upon me. It was a problem that she also said has to do with journalism's theory of change. There wasn't one, really. Or there was, but it was assumed to speak for itself. I think it was just like this this overwhelming feeling that like every time I wrote and published a story that it was just going out into the ether and I had no idea who I was writing for and I didn't really know like what was the point of me writing this and like all the, all the, um, all of the feedback or not the feedback, but like, you know, what I was hearing from my peers about like the reason that we do this work, it just wasn't, it it didn't make sense to me. I was like, I don't really believe that. Right. Like people would say like, Oh, you're writing this to like change the conversation. And then I'm like the conversation for whom, like, like whose conversation. It was these same questions about power sharing. She was doing stories about people, but not for or with people. And she was skeptical that the kind of trickle-down theory for journalism was really working for the most targeted people. 
And I want people to read my story and be able to like immediately take action in a way that like, you know, makes people feel like they have a sense of agency. Because I do feel like a lot of the stories that we read nowadays, uh, especially like these like outrage stories are just like meant to rile you up and then make you feel powerless. And I'm like, why would I want to do that? Like, it doesn't seem like a good use of my time. So even though it was supposed to be a dream job, she left national journalism and started working at DNA Info, doing hyperlocal reporting in Chicago, and then left that to become a founder of City Bureau, a community-driven newsroom covering Chicago's South Side. She and her co-founders were asking questions that aren't asked enough in journalism. You know, like, how do we democratize this process? How do we, you know, if journalism is so important to democracy, then how could journalism be so undemocratic in itself and, and trying to address that issue? Um, and so, you know, it really started out with a simple idea, which is like, can we have a fellowship where the reporters, instead of like publishing a story and then asking for feedback, if they could just ask for feedback as they're reporting earlier on along the way, and, um, you know, be more connected with the communities that they're reporting in instead of just like dropping into, like you said, like extract a quote from a random Ohio person when I can and then like never be back. Right. Um, so the fellowship was set up to build in those processes. So it's not like like, oh, hey, like you'll get rewarded if you do this. Like, no, actually, like we're going to stop halfway through the cycle and we're going to get feedback and then you're and then we'll change based on what we hear. And it doesn't matter. You know, like we're, we're not going to like hang on to this idea that we had unless we get the feedback that it's like worthwhile. So they launched this fellowship program where they train people every year to do journalism. And that journalism is grounded in community input every step of the way. They created these public newsroom events where people who make journalism talk to members of the public about their process and ideas. And they started a thing called Documenters where they train and pay people to do the most basic nuts and bolts local journalism, covering public meetings, government meetings, doing research on government agencies and sunshine laws. They have hundreds of Chicago residents on their documenters list, and they've launched the program in Detroit and Cleveland too. I interviewed Bettina for the first time a couple years ago, but obviously given COVID, we had to follow up. Hey, Bettina, it's Lewis and Ramona. Good to hear from you. Hey there, how are you? Well, yeah, basically, I'm just hoping to hear about what City Bureau has been up to since the pandemic really hit. I know that Chicago has been really hard hit and that you all have like changed course pretty quickly. So we didn't want to bother you during those first few weeks, but we're bothering you now. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the first thing we did was we reached out to our community partners, um, some folks who we'd already been in contact with about, about long-term projects and some people who were just on our list of, of groups that we um, have interacted with before and really respect the work that they do. Um, we sent out a survey really early on just to be like, you know, what, what are the barriers for you and people in your network to getting information right now um, with the recognition that information in a pandemic more than ever, right, even though a lot of people are already in this situation, but during a pandemic, it was very much that, like, information could save lives. We heard over and over from people that it's not that we, it's not that the information isn't out there, but just that there's too much and we don't have the time to be sorting through it. They responded by creating an online resource finder, 
a tool to sort through resources and information about COVID based on what you're looking for, money, food, mental health, unemployment assistance, and so on. That's all online now with over 1,300 vetted resources and the source code for people in other places who want to build a similar tool. It's pretty awesome. They've also launched a new interview project with the documenters, and they're building an information aid network specifically for people without internet access, calling people up to ask them what information they need. It's becoming more and more clear how much the news needs to adjust towards like really urgent information needs. And that like a lot of the news that we spent time and effort on before was more like, oh, it would be good to know that and not like I need to know that right now in order to survive. Um, And to just know, I mean, like, it's so unfortunate, right, that like so many people are at that brink. But at the same time, it really forces us to reconsider, you know, how do we how are we providing equitable access to information? And, you know, when folks are really in need, is there somebody there who it's their job to be able to to fill fill that in? Because if not, then, you know, what is even the point of the rest of the information system? That's Bettina Chang, co-founder of City Bureau in Chicago. They have posted links to the source code for the COVID resource finder, plus lots of other great stuff about the documenters and the information aid network. It's linked on our website, viewfromsomewhere.com, or you can find them directly at citybureau.org. I'm so stoked about Sarah Alvarez and Bettina Chang and everything they're doing to change journalism and build organizations that are actually accountable to the communities they serve. And I wonder if he'd had access to Outlier or City Bureau, how Eddie Cave's story in Detroit might have been different. I wonder how every community would be different in this pandemic if we had information infrastructure based on the real needs of the most vulnerable people. But I also just keep thinking about that day, sitting in the sun with Eddie Cave, walking through his shadowy house, looking in his eyes and hugging, how it felt to be close to someone, a stranger, and how much I took that for granted. The ways people are responding to this pandemic are inspiring. And I just miss people. I wanna give you all a hug. Okay, I'm going to stop before I get emotional. This is The View From Somewhere. On the next episode, we dig into the idea of movement journalism with Tina Vasquez. I'm so excited. Meanwhile, give us those stars on iTunes. Check out our website for links and swag, viewfromsomewhere.com, and stay in touch. This podcast is produced by Ramona Martinez. Our editor on this episode is Carla Murphy. Our theme music is composed by Dog Botic. Additional music comes from Pottington Bear. Our artist is Billy D, and we're distributed by Critical Frequency.